Some of you will remember it being constructed. Um, Some of you will only know about it from history books. I grew up with it existing right the way through my childhood. It was built in 1961. It's the Berlin Wall. So some of you will, yeah, I remember when suddenly it seemed almost overnight. Berlin was segregated and uh, the East Germans decided that they would build a wall to protect their people, as they described it, from fascist influence. Many of you will remember that remarkable moment, 9th of November, 1989, when the Berlin Wall came down. Those remarkable scenes of people standing on the top of the wall, chipping away at it, banging great big chunks off it, Over the next month, the German authorities uh, took down the whole of that segregating wall. A wall which at the time previous had seemed absolutely impenetrable. It seemed as though there was no way in which uh, there would be any reversal. There were many people who lost their lives trying to uh, cross from east to west Germany. It was impenetrable. It seemed, certainly as I was growing up, as though it always would be there. And yet, remarkably, in a very, very short space of time, all of that changed. The whole kind of uh, environment, the political landscape, just turned, it seemed, almost overnight. Germany was reunified, and the whole of the political system was changed. In a sense, that's what we see in the book of Esther. If we've been following it through, what we've seen, what we've had portrayed, is the idea of a king, King Xerxes, who seems, in human terms, to the will of God, impenetrable. It seems as though it would be impossible for the situation to be turned around. What we've had up to now is that... um, uh, king, the king, King Xerxes, has uh, been absolutely stubborn from the very beginning. That's one of the interesting things that we see uh, portrayed before us as the story unfolds. Can I encourage you, if you haven't managed to follow through the series, they're available to download on the website. You can follow through and catch up with where we've got to. But he has this run-in with his original queen, and it's, it's really a standoff of wills. And it seems as though Xerxes is not to be moved. He's not going to change his ways. It then follows through that that stubborn will becomes expressed in the enemy of God's people, which is Haman. Haman rises to number two in the kingdom. In fact, we see that Haman is given the signet ring of the king. You've seen the movies, I'm sure, where the king uh, stamps into the wax with his signet ring, a seal of royal authority. Uh, In other words, if it contains that seal, then it is an absolute law, even more so in the law of the Medes and the Persians, which can't be revoked. Uh, And Xerxes gives that ring to this man called Haman, who is, um, he's got these tags, which we haven't got time to go into now, but he's got these tags which identify him by his upbringing, with those who have always opposed opposed God's will. In other words, 
The Bible is sending through this historical narrative. It's sending to us extra little hints and storylines to say, don't forget, against this story behind as a backdrop is this constant idea that there is opposition to the will of God in this world. There is the opposition to the God who created the world. There is the opposition to God's people. And in the sense, Haman expresses that opposition. Uh, now what we have in chapter 7, which is just a, in one chapter, almost like Berlin, almost one night, the whole thing turns around. It just completely ends up reversed. Haman, who has decided to have Mordecai killed by impaling on a pole, ends up impaled on the very pole that he had prepared for, uh, for Mordecai. It's completely reversed in a matter of hours, literally. The one who is opposing God and opposing God's people is defeated. Remarkable turn of events. Now what we have in chapter 8 is we have almost the reversal of, if you like, the stubbornness of the king. The reversal of the opposition to God's people is all expressed in this one chapter. Haman is dead in pre the end of the previous chapter. Now what do we see at the beginning of that chapter 8? It's almost as though the narrator is wanting to impress on us the speed at which events have changed. Look at what uh, we see in verse 1. That same day... King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Do you see that extra little tag that is given there? Just to remind you, this isn't about um, a simple uh, individual personality clash. This is about the opposition to God's people. And it's turned around on that very day. Now, if we've managed to keep up with the story to this point... What we know of Haman is that he is astoundingly successful and astoundingly wealthy. He's, he's reached such a high place in the kingdom. All of that was his security. I don't know where you are in your own lives. Uh, many of us place our securities in all sorts of things, whether it's um, material possessions whether it's uh, a career, whether it's uh, friendships, relationships, family, whatever it might be, all of those various expressions of life's essentials to us can very often end up over-exploited. We use them too much, and they become more than just a valued um, gift of God they become the very thing which we place our security in. So we place our security in the gift rather than placing our security in the giver. God has given us those things, but we don't trust Him. We trust the things that He's given. Just reflect on that a minute, and I think you could probably, uh, as I can, assess in my life my own weak spots uh, maybe you can assess your own weak spots and say, you know what, I have a real tendency, I have a real weakness of putting my security in that. And I need to be constantly reminded that verse 1 can happen. <laughs> it can change in a matter 
of hours. All of the things that I absolutely hold on to within a day can change. That is the reality of life. And many of us have experienced those sudden and dramatic changes. Interestingly, Haman had been warned on a number of occasions uh, in the build-up to this by his wife and by his friends, look, you are heading for a crisis. You're holding on to something which you you can't win this. You're up against God and the God of the Jews. Uh, And yet he pursued that. Now what we see is that all of that wealth is now given to Queen Esther, who gives it in trust to Mordecai. Isn't that remarkable? What a turn of events. The one who was literally a matter of hours away due to be impaled on a pole, owned and constructed by the one who had all of this wealth, now finds all of that wealth in his possession, given to him by the king. That seems a strange thing, doesn't it? One of the things that we see in the ancient world is that convicted criminals, their estate certainly according to archaeological evidence for the Medes and Persians, all of their estate reverted to the ownership of the king. That's not a a kind of bad thing for the king, really, is it? It's certainly got a great incentive to have a whole load of criminals in your your, um, country, just get rid of them and inherit their estate. But Mordecai, uh, Haman was very clearly... Uh, a criminal in Medo-Persian terms. And so all of that was given to Xerxes, and Xerxes gives it to Queen Esther, gives uh, Queen Esther the estate. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king. For Esther, do you remember? Esther had previously kept quiet about her identity. Now Mordecai comes into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. And the king took off his signet ring and presented it to Mordecai. There's another little indication, isn't it, of a dramatic turnaround. All of the possessions of Haman now become Mordecai's. And not only the possessions, but the royal authority that was previously Haman's now becomes Mordecai. He gives to Mordecai the king's signet ring. He gives him the opportunity to make edicts, to stamp the wax seals with the authority of the king. Signet ring, signature ring, that's literally what it means. You bear my signature. You carry my authority. And Mordecai now is presented with the very authority that Haman had previously had and was seeking to use against him. We read in a previous chapter, in a drunken incident, it seems, that uh, Haman was presented with the ring by King Xerxes. Now we find that in that kind of sober, thoughtful, reflective environment, the king gives Mordecai that very authority. Talk about a collapse of an impossible war. That morning, as the Jews got up, 
they would still have been facing the death warrant. They would still have been facing, at that moment in time, the law that Haman had put in place, bearing the king's authority, in the future, some months away, to have all of the Jews wiped out. It seemed an impossible wall for the Jews to break down, and yet, in a matter of hours, God reverses everything. Breathtaking change that we see. A time of unprecedented reversals taking place. I suppose as we think about that, there's another perspective that we need to have opened up in our minds. Who is the ultimate authority in this story as we see it portrayed before us? Well, the ultimate authority worked out in Susa on that day was King Xerxes, wasn't it? Here he is. He reverses all of his decisions regarding the death of Mordecai through Haman. He has Haman killed. He has the the ring recovered from him. And he gives the authority to place that ring on the finger of Mordecai instead of Haman. And there's Xerxes, it seems, at the very pinnacle of that absolute supreme authority. All of the power, it seems is in the hands of Xerxes. Now stop, because the narrator wants us to understand something else, doesn't he? The way he's constructed it, right the way through. He's wanting to remind us that the one who looks as though he is in supreme authority is actually the one who is under supreme authority. He is the one who is actually not working out things, but in actual fact... He is the one who is in the hands of the living God. Mordecai. Why does he win extra favor before Xerxes? Because previously in the story, he's already saved the life of the king. Remarkably, because he was just in the right place at just the right time. And he had the connections through Queen Esther to uh, undermine a conspiracy against the king and to save the life of the king. And it wasn't as though it was revealed at that point in time. It waited until just the right moment in time. But after all of that, why was he even able to do that? Because it happened that he was the older cousin of the king's queen. Esther. He was the one who had taken her into his care when she was an orphan child. He was the one who had been caring for and had that compassionate relationship with her, and he had access to the king. So even when he heard it, there had to be another step ahead of time for him to have access to save the king. And how was it that Queen Esther had actually ended up in that place? Because she had been in an environment where she had understood and learned what it was to show uh, dignity and courage and love and respect and compassion and all of those graces that mark Esther out as unique in the Bible, in this particular storyline. So completely opposed to the pattern that we see in Vashti because she had been brought up in the knowledge and love of God. She had been brought up in the understanding and in the pattern of this godly family of Mordecai. And all of that, all of those various steps, we now see 
coming together at this moment in time. It's as though King Xerxes has all of these different threads that now appear in one. As, as you know that moment in Star Wars when, um, oh man, I've got to remember the right details now. Where Luke and um, and uh, uh, what's her name, the the, the Princess Leah. Well, yeah, I'm dredging now. They end up realizing their brother and sister and Darth Vader's the dad. And, you know, all the kind of storyline that they've remarkably... Yeah, sorry, yeah. Yeah, if, you've, if you haven't seen Star Wars yet, I'm really sorry. If you haven't, you probably don't want to see it by now. I wonder what it must have felt for Xerxes. Because I reckon it must have been just like that. All these little threads. You're Esther's older cousin, Mordecai. The one who I had read about in the middle of the night when I couldn't sleep. You're related. This is amazing. This is remarkable. And you're the one who Haman was wanting to kill. You know, sometimes in our experiences, in our experiences of life, we realize that those connections and connections and connections are beyond just fate. They're beyond just freak accidents. We become aware and we have a compelling understanding that maybe you're here this afternoon Because we can see a pattern of events which brought us to this moment in time. Not because it's just nice to be here. Because I want to suggest that what Xerxes maybe was seeing was that maybe he was being confronted with a greater reality. With an understanding of the God behind the one who was working things out. And maybe that is your experience in this understanding in your life as you see yourself here, the last place I would possibly ever be in a church thinking about the God of the Bible. This is remarkable and yet I know that what has gone on in my life is not just a series of freak accidents. Because actually what God is doing in our lives is breaking down the walls of resistance. Just like he broke down the walls in Susa on that day. The walls of resistance in the heart and mind, those impossible walls where we see that Xerxes, by God's grace, is not crushed. He's changed. Isn't that amazing? Up to now... He's been, without realizing it, instrumental in standing against God. And God, by His mercy, has not crushed him. He has changed him. He has reversed his thinking. He's opened him up to a relationship with Mordecai far greater than had ever been before. He opens the door for Mordecai to have access to the highest power and authority in the whole of the empire. Esther then pleads again. 
She pleads for the life of all of her people once again. And in just a fantastic parallel, this mirror, previously we see Xerxes just says to Haman, do what you want, take my signet ring, write the edict, I don't care about the people that you want to kill, just do whatever you want. Now we see, in this amazing reversal, we see Xerxes saying effectively the same to Mordecai, but with thinking and with understanding and with relationship, where he says, now you, take my signet ring, and you, do what is right. You do what you think is right to resolve the issue of that law that had been passed. A law, remember, which cannot be repealed. You can't just go and say that law no longer exists. Reverse it. I'm going to write off that day. That cannot be done according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. But resolve it is the message to Mordecai from King Xerxes. Look at that in verse 9. At once, the royal secretaries were summoned. You know, straight away, they were on the case. It's almost as though they get the political brains in place, and they go and they start to resolve it. And they get all of the the, uh, secretaries, and they get the thinking in place, and then they write out an edict which does not... uh, does not um, change the previous one, but resolves it. You see the way it works out. We can't say that one no longer exists. What we do is we bring in another law which says that if there is any, remember that the law in the past, according to Haman, was that on a day in the future, then anybody could attack the Jews and take all of their possessions, and they were all to be killed. Now the law says... The Jews have a right to gather together and to challenge and to attack back or to defend themselves against any attack. That's the way it's resolved. And to take possession of those, uh, the goods and the, the, the possessions of those who seek to challenge them. They have a right now to do what they previously couldn't do. We can't change it, but we can resolve it. And in a remarkable way, we see that the door opens for all of the Jewish nation, if they are attacked, to gain benefit in exactly the same way as Mordecai has gained benefit because Haman attacked him. It's remarkable, isn't it? The way the story unfolds, the way the narrator helps us to understand. But I think there's more. This is not just as we've said right from the very beginning, this is not just about the idea of one man against one man. It's not the idea about Haman against Mordecai and the idea that perhaps Haman might win and Mordecai ends up winning and gaining greater benefit. There is way more important stuff going on because this is positioned after Ezra and Nehemiah. In actual fact, this narrative occurs probably around about 30 years before the occurrence of Nehemiah. Because as the walls break down in Susa, the walls of Xerxes' opposition and Haman's opposition, it opens the doors 
for walls to be built 30 years later in Jerusalem. Remember that God's people have been in exile. They've ended up in the Persian Empire. The whole of Jerusalem is just a derelict mess. It's just derelict. But don't forget that Jerusalem is the tangible representation of God with his people. And it looks like God isn't with his people. It looks as if God has abandoned his people. It says that there are foxes uh, sleeping in the ruins and building dens in the ruins of the wall of Jerusalem, we read in Nehemiah. It's just a mess. The temple has been destroyed. It looks as though God has forgotten his people. And yet what we see in Esther is a great reminder that God has not forgotten his people. He's not forgotten his people. In fact, what he is doing in Susa is opening up relationships. He's opening up favor. He's opening up an opportunity for the leaders of the Persian Empire to reverse their view of the Jewish nation so that they might find favor so that Nehemiah ends up as the cupbearer to the king, so that they are now a people who are valued and appreciated within the empire, so that the door opens for Nehemiah 30 years later to get back and to have Jerusalem rebuilt. Why? Because Esther is telling us at a much deeper level, God never, never, never forgets his people. Even when it looks like, even when it feels as though the opposition is beyond our ability to knock it down, God has not forgotten his people. Thirty years later, walls are rebuilt because the walls in Susa on this day come tumbling down. God has not forgotten them. See, this is not, on the one hand, God saying, don't you touch my people. (laughs) And yet on another level, it is absolutely about that. Why is it so important for Jerusalem to be rebuilt? Why? Because what God has intended to do through the whole of the Old Testament is to make sure that the whole of the world knows That God is making his presence with his people. Look at the way the story uh, unfolds right at the very end. We see in actual fact um, that there are those who end up becoming Jews. Look at that right at the end in verse 17. In every province, interestingly, just as a byproduct, they send the message out by the equivalent of uh, super-fast broadband. (laughs) They send it out with the horses that are bred specifically for the king. That's the best they could do on the day, but they used the very, very best, joking aside, they used the very best technology that they had to hand to get the message to the extremes of the empire. In other words, the king does not reserve or hold back any opportunity to get the message out 
and they get the message out to all of the the empire. Uh, And then we read in verse 17, in every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. Now, the previous sounds like this is all about war and fighting and about God saying this is all about the Jews having the opportunity to kill people. Look at what the next bit says. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. I think that is one of the most remarkable verses in the whole of this book. This is all about God declaring to this world, this is who I am. I'm present. I'm working for my people. And you don't have to stay opposed to me. You can actually become close to me. They become associated, attached. They are proselytized, if you like, to the Jewish nation. They become followers of that living God. In other words, the work of God and the hand of God at this moment in time became a massive missionary venture for the Jewish nation, for the word of God in that particular land at that particular time across the nation. People were saved. I don't know how that fits with our thinking when we just stop and think there's going to be a point in the future where I'm going to meet somebody in eternity who was an Indian or a Kushite, because that's how far the empire spread, uh, who was never a follower of of God in the Bible, but when they understood the God of the Jews, they became a follower of the God of the Jews. And one day at some point in the future, they're going to be in eternity, saved ultimately by Jesus Christ, saving uh, death on the cross for all who look forward and all who look back. I'm going to say, isn't that amazing? Because you are there because God intervened in the life of Esther and Haman was crushed and Mordecai was exalted and word went out and, it, and in the culture of the day, people understood that this is because this God is the God of ultimate authority. Because the door was being opened for God to say, I'm still present with his people in Jerusalem 30 years later. But there's even more because what it says is that that nation, if you think about Israel in the Old Testament, they ebbed and they flowed. They had great kings. They had terrible kings. They were good. They were bad. They were loved and they were abhorred. They were hated by certain nations. They were held captive by certain nations. But the ultimate opposition, the ultimate opposition to the Jewish nation came 500 years later. Because the ultimate opposition came in opposition to Jesus the ultimate king of the Jews. The one who came and would never have been born if it hadn't have been for God intervening in Susa on that day. Jesus would not have appeared. He would, the, the Jewish nation would have been wiped out. The whole of this story is about God promising, I will secure a Messiah. I'll rebuild Jerusalem. 
I'll establish Jerusalem again. I've not forgotten my people. Jesus is going to be born because I promised a Savior. And he's going to be born to my people in Bethlehem. He's going to come into Jerusalem and he's going to die outside of Jerusalem. Because there is a much bigger purpose. And we get a little hint of it in verse 17. Where we see people from outside of the Jewish nation coming to faith with those in the Jewish nation, because Jesus becomes the ultimate wall destroyer. We read it in Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore remember that formerly you, who are Gentiles by birth and so-called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcised, that's the Jews, That's the Jews, those who are, you're either inside or you're outside. You're either part of the Jewish nation or you're outside of it. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. In other words, you had no hope. You were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. In other words... That moment where a few came to faith or a number came to faith through the Jews was just a little taste of something way better that was going to happen. Because for the best part, we were excluded from the hope of the God of the Jews. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. There's another wall that is broken down. It's a literal and it's a concept. You go to the temple, and if we'd have gone to the temple in the day of Jesus we would have only been allowed so far. There was a wall, a partition. There was a court of the Gentiles on the outside. But it was only the Jews who could get closer because there was a separating wall which divided, which said, you can only get this far. You can't get really close to God. And yet Jesus breaks in And he opens the door by breaking down the wall. Does that sound strange? Mixed metaphors. He opens the door for us. He breaks down the wall that previously separated. A wall in temple terms, but a wall in relationship terms. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose I think this is amazing. Verse, um, back end of verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 2. His purpose was to create for himself one new humanity. Out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. In other words, what we see in Esther is an idea of hostility and opposition. And what we see in, and yet at the same time, the idea of the possibility of hope. And yet what we see in Jesus is 
the changing again. A new covenant is established. A way for you and for me, who perhaps are not brought, uh, born into that Jewish heritage. A possibility for us truly to come to faith in the God of the Bible through that one who God had always promised, who was only going to be delivered if God secured the livelihood of the Jewish people and the hope of Jerusalem and ultimately the birth of Jesus. Because the greatest barrier, the greatest wall that ultimately is destroyed is not a wall really that separates two people groups. What that verse says is that he's going to reconcile both of them to God. He's going to make one people. In other words, those who are Jews and those who are Gentiles, that wall's broken down, you become one people. But you've still got a problem. You do understand that, don't you? You've still got a problem. You've still got a barrier. Because the ultimate wall that needs to be broken down is the wall that separates us from God himself. And Jesus says he reconciles them both through the cross. He breaks down that final barrier of separation. The separation of our rebellion and our sin, which we see a foretaste, if you like, a flavor of that idea in Esther chapter 8. What is it saying to us? It's saying that this God is absolutely faithful. He's never going to stop on His promises. He's never going to fail to deliver. He is going to establish a relationship between His people and His Father through Jesus. But he is only going to establish that relationship through Jesus. It's the only way. Because that one people are reconciled, both of them to God, through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Their hostility. Yes, to each other. But ultimately their hostility to God himself. What a great hope that is. What a great wall that is finally destroyed. I don't know whether we can keep in our minds, you know, it was, I think it was Richard Baxter, he said, have ideas that go off in our brains. I want to plant an idea in your brain that might go off in the future. The idea that next time you see some kind of idea or some uh, reference to the Berlin Wall being knocked down, maybe it'll just remind you that there is a greater wall that has been knocked down. And it's the wall that has separated us from God. And it's been knocked down by Jesus through the cross. Isn't that great news? And it would never have happened if Esther had not been in the right place because God had put her there.